This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay. Uh, Permaculture Smackdown. Uh, I'm here with Katie and Jeff. We're going to uh, do start on uh, Chapter 4 of Desert of Paradise by Seth Holzer. And uh, I, I know that uh, we, we usually have Opalin here, but... Um, the PDC at my place starts tomorrow morning, and Opalyn is here now. I think she's uh, getting settled. I saw her about a half an hour ago. She's too busy. She's got lots of stuff she's doing. And then uh, a lot of times when we do this, Mark is part of it. But I think Mark is either en route or he's already here, and I don't know it yet. Uh, so um, it's down to just us. We can do it. We're going to pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, and uh, thank you, Jeff, for uh, uh, showing the little pictures and stuff. So it'll be something for the YouTube people to look at. The tubers. The tubers can look at. All right, here we go. Chapter four. A strategy to feed the world. Becoming a gardener of the earth. Feeding the world, self-sufficiency is possible anywhere. Okay, there's going to be some political stuff here. Normally my podcast has no political stuff in it, but it's going to give you an idea of Seth Holzer's political gobbledygook, which could be of help. Here we go. When the Inuit in Greenland and the San people in Africa start doing the same thing because of funding guidelines, both will become dependent and starve. A child dies of starvation every seven seconds. It is unbelievable that we are allowing this to happen. Famine is man-made. Hunger can be caused by drought, but most of it is a result of wrong global politics in agriculture. Millions of farmers are uprooted by an industrial agriculture that overuses and destroys unbelievably large areas across the globe. People starve because of ruthless corporate groups making a lot of money through the unfair distribution of food. I actually believe that hunger is consciously used, a select few making money at the cost of many. While I am writing this, millions of people are demonstrating in the streets of South America North Africa, and also Europe, against the 70% rise in the cost of food. It is a year of record harvests. So how is this possible? 
I believe the global companies and their henchmen, I think it's funny he uses the word henchmen, <laughs> in the government to be responsible. Can I give ecological answers to such obvious political wrongdoing? Yes, I can. People need to start growing their own food again. It'll make them self-sufficient and autonomous, which would put an end to the corruption in the food industry. I am convinced that our planet can feed three times as many. That is 21 billion instead of 7 billion people. All it takes is respect for all living beings and the sensible management of nature's enormous resources, the sun, rain, and soil. All right, big political opening. Katie? Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that he's got such a positive vision and a way to to encourage people. Like, I'm not an average person, like certainly me. I don't see a lot of ways to influence politics in a way that uh, is long-lasting. <clears throat> I don't know, too much politicy stuff. But it's nice to have something that's not, that anybody could do, like grow food, encourage other people to grow food, give give food to other people. Like these are these are political acts. I mean, uh, the personal is political. Everything you do is in the like, non-political world affects the political world, and the political world affects the day-to-day life of every person. Now, I, um, I kind of feel like, that if you've got your humble home and a massive garden, that all of politics becomes rather small and far away. Now, I, I do believe that the thing that he started off here was, was rather profound. Um, the thing about the Inuit and the people in Africa, they start, they're being, uh, they're being told that if they do this thing, whatever this thing is, uh, which falls under the realm of funding guidelines, then basically Sepulcher says it'll all go to shit. And so I I kind of feel like, man, there is a lot of truth to that. Um, and it's kind of like, okay, we will subsidize you, provided that you do it this particular way. And it's like, uh, well, that won't work here. Hey, do you want the subsidy or not? You know? Do you want, look, here's, here's 20 grand. I'm going to give you $20,000 if you just do it this way to the best of your ability in a place where it obviously won't work. And, and it's kind of like, so then they could become dependent on the $20,000 subsidy and then yoink, that's gone. And, and then in the meantime, all their stuff is gone. I, uh, I feel like that's a very, I mean, that's like, uh, the grant system which I believe the grant system is, in its own way, rather political. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that the rest of this stuff is, is some powerful political stuff, and he clearly doesn't like politicians. But, of course, you know, I think a lot of people don't care for politicians. There are some people that work in the political arenas that are doing wonderful work and are really trying hard in a, in a space that's so rather impossible. But I do kind of feel like, um, I mean, of course, Seth Poulter is also a guy who has paid uh, more 
in um, agricultural fines than anybody else in Europe. So I kind of feel like he has he, he has a legitimate gripe. And at the same time, I kind of feel like his, his solutions are profound. And um, I also, uh, not only, he's got this thing in here about uh, feeding 21 billion instead of 7 billion people. When I saw him in Dayton, Montana in 2012, um, the interpreters were telling me that, uh, like, just a few weeks before they came out, uh, a study came out which effectively proved this to be true, that Sepulcher's techniques across the planet would feed 21 billion people. Um, I thought I thought that was I could I I believe I can understand how that is possible, and I I appreciate that it is that it was effectively proven. That's lovely. All right. Any more comments about that, or I'm going to move on to the the next piece. The very next moment, it talks about. Um, I guess he's a professor. Um, have you read any? Do you know any books or, by this person? No, I mean it's it's a name that I'm not sure I could even pronounce. Oh my gosh, should I butcher it? Go for it. Try it. Oh my gosh, Bernd Losch. <laughs> I believe it. Um, of the Human Ecology Institute in Vienna, a man I hold in the highest regard. If Sepp Holter holds somebody in the highest regard, I want to find out more about this person, but I've never heard of this person, so I'd like to know if if there's some books or anything. <laughs> but well, maybe it's something for the future to look up. Okay. All right. Uh, the next chunk I have marked off is to say um, I have no problem with the globalization of some limited products like coffee or bananas. These are luxury items. I am strictly against the globalization of staple foods. As soon as a product becomes a bulk commodity, it will be treated with chemicals and harvested prematurely. So, um... I, I find it kind of interesting, like the whole thing about apples. Now, of course, Katie, you live in Hawaii, so I imagine apples are going to be pretty expensive for you, but they might actually be about the same price for you as for us here in the United States um, uh, because you can't really grow apples in Hawaii. True? Mm, it's frustrating. It's not true, but at the lower elevations, it is true. It, Hawaii's often have uh, sort of a mountain shape or semi-cone-shaped uh, islands. And so in the higher elevations, you can. I actually have a friend growing a certain variety in a lower elevation, but you can't get those at the farmer's market. You can't get them. You can mostly get them at Costco. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> my my understanding is is that of all the apples that we eat here uh, in the United States, and, and that's like I'm uh, you know just a few hours away from – Washington State, you know, uh, apple country. And, um, and of course, we grow apples here. But um, you would think that if you go to the grocery store that the apples that are in the grocery store would be just coming from Washington or even Montana. Um, but instead, they're dominantly from China. And it's, it's like, uh, now you'd think 
Wow, it's, it has something to do with the fact that uh, um, China, the, the people that go out and pick the fruit are getting paid so much less than the, the people here in the United States picking the fruit. And then um, the cost of shipping is so incredibly cheap. And I kind of can't help but think that it's kind of like, well, um, I would like to think, because it's kind of like, okay, whatever the price is that they're paying the people in China, they still got to put it on trucks and get it to their port. Then they got to load it up onto a big boat. The boat's got to come all the way over to, like, say, Puget Sound um, to Seattle. Then it gets loaded up onto another truck and then drives through Washington State apple country (laughs) to get it to Montana. And so it seems like – and at the same time, I know – that the farmers that are raising the apples are uh, getting paid something like uh, 22 cents a pound for the apples to go to the the commodity warehouse. And so, and and then we're paying $2 a pound for the apples. So it kind of makes it seem like the middleman is taking a little too big of a cut is what it, seems like, and of course, there's a great deal that I don't know about for certain and all of that, but um, it, it does seem a bit silly, and uh, um, it also seems like, you know, you can go to Apple Country and maybe pay 50 cents a pound, they'll get more money, and it'll cost me practically nothing to get, uh, to get the apples. It'll cost me a quarter as much as if I go to the grocery store. Of course, it's far superior to grow your own. All I'm all I'm saying is is that uh, Seth Holster is addressing this globalization of staple foods, and it it does. I think he's got a point. It's like how how does this happen? How does it end up being cheaper to bring Chinese apples to Montana than Washington State apples or even Montana State? All right. Um, next section. The next thing. I am poor. Oh, yes. Yes. Jeff. Jeff speaks. <laughs> so I just did a little bit of research, and it turns out that we, at least in Washington, this is focusing on Washington. Washington sends apples to China, and China sends apples to us. <laughs> um. So this was a couple of years ago, but Washington Apple Companies had sent over 1.3 million uh, 40-pound boxes of apples to China each year uh, in the, the couple of years since it, they, we opened doors. It turns out we opened doors about five years ago, so this article is a few years old. But And then how many apples did they send to us? I don't know. Um, a lot. Uh, oh, there it says it says uh, Chinese apple exports to the U.S. increased by more than thirty-fold, mm-hmm. from six million of those boxes to uh, I don't know, yeah, one hundred ninety-two thousand looks like. That sounds like that. Oh wait, no, it was six six thousand to one hundred ninety-two thousand boxes. And how many boxes did we send them? Ten million. Oh. Okay. So 1.3 million. Um, but this was, this was several years ago. And so I would not be surprised if it is, 
if the balance has shifted away from where yeah. we expect it to be. Still, I, I kind of feel like if I go to the grocery store, I mean, apples do great in Montana. You know, and, and I, I'm pretty sure I recorded a podcast long ago where where basically people were talking about, like, support your local farmer and uh, go to the farmer's market and stuff like that. I think I think there's a lot of great reasons to go to the farmer's market, but people are talking about, like, that way there's less petroleum burned up on that food that you're buying. And it's like, oh, turns out that's not the case. And, it, and it's because... When they ship all those apples from China to here, they do it so incredibly efficient, efficiently, like on those boats and then on those semi-trucks and things like that. And then when a farmer is going to drive uh, a load of uh, produce into the farmer's market, usually using a, like, like, a, like a Ford F-350, that's carrying like uh, you know a bunch of produce, but not a full load, and then is driving 40 miles, and then is gonna like you know come back, go back home with half that, and it's kind of like turns out that 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 the amount of petroleum burned per pound of food was pretty significant, and so more than the amount of petroleum burned to get the apples to the grocery store. And then if a human being decides to drive out to that guy's farm, the amount of petroleum burned is even greater. So it's like, uh, uh, that's a, that's a tough one. That one is not so easy. Um, <clears throat> okay. What a, what a complicated and gut wrenching space. Any way that you look at it. All right. Uh, I'm ready to move on to the next piece. You guys ready? Here we go. I am horrified that the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO, recommends the use of more artificial fertilizers and the further industrialization of agriculture. I call this misguided expert opinion. Okay, then he goes into, like, why this stuff is so bad. But I think we all know that already. Then there's a lovely picture below of some weird-ass-looking greenhouse stuff. And he says, greenhouse cultures use too many resources. And then he's got more to say about how greenhouses suck. Um, let's see... All right, um, moving along. The next piece I've got marked off is Ecology and Economy are Not Opposites. By listening to nature, I can be successful everywhere. I've been able to gain experience in all sorts of climates and environments, and I have come to the conclusion that sustainable food production is possible anywhere. I've had success in Uraba, as I say, Uraba, Uraba, the land of bananas, in the deserts of Jordan, and even on glaciers. 
Oh, yeah. So there's the picture. Look at that picture oh. Jeff's got up right there. That's greenhouses. <laughs> Wild, huh? So um, now, Katie, have, you've done some stuff with greens. You, you've got a mic. You've had a. You either have had or you still have a micro greens business. Is that true? Yes. Um, hydroponic sprouts and micro greens. Okay. All right. So it was in a greenhouse like thing, wasn't it? The microgreens, well, in Hawaii, we often have screenhouses. In this area, it's too hot. A greenhouse would be like an oven. Uh-huh. And so a screenhouse lets, lets things in and out. So it's better because it doesn't, um, it doesn't have an entirely unnatural environment. It's just basically shade and bug. But it doesn't, so the hydroponics and the microgreens that we do are not permaculture, and I don't see a way they could ever be, um, the way that we do them. Um, we, we purchased the business, and I'm, I'm glad I learned a lot, but, um, the way that we have to import seed for the for the sprouts, the number of seeds grown, and the cost of doing them, of, of making those seeds ourselves on Hawaii land prices, <laughs> um, seem prohibitive. I don't see a solution, uh, at least not yet, um, for that problem. Uh, I don't. It, it makes a lot of food, though. We make thousands of pounds per month. Wow! Wow! Nice. Now in Hawaii. Um, I've, I've heard, I've heard stories about Hawaii stuff and, uh, and, and it's been, and the things that I have heard have made me very depressed. But, uh, uh, so in Hawaii, one of the things I've heard is about lettuces. But now if you're selling microgreens, then you must have found a way to solve this problem of there's like a, there's a microscopic slug. Is that right? Oh, the slug is bad. We we don't let the slugs anywhere near the food. If you if you try to raise rabbits on the ground, they get they get this bad. Uh, so it's called rat lungworm disease, and it goes in a sort of a cycle through the the rats and also through the slugs. So the slugs they will lay about the eggs of these things like little tiny. You can't see them in the slug slime. You cannot eat if anything has has gotten slugified. You got to get rid of it. Um, you see a slug trail. You got to just clip off that leaf. They can't reliably wash it off. Um, but we don't, we just don't let anything, any slug get anywhere near any of it. Um, so we don't grow directly on the ground there. And there's other solutions for lettuces, um, that people have just to keep, keep the slugs out and just to keep an eye on it. Um, you can also make slug traps. Um, on this island, the slugs that carry it more are not, there aren't as many of them. So that's lucky. Um, some islands is worse than others. Well, I imagine if you're doing aquaponics, that you effectively have a moat. Around all your greens, and the slugs. There's no way the slugs can get across that. As long as you, as long as you don't get any inside the moat. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah part yeah. of all the stuff is indoors. That's not an issue. Um, but the greenhouse, they, you know, they're clever little buggers. Ah, <laughs> the war continues. It just, it sounded heartbreaking to try and well, solve it. The thing is that it's very rare to get it. So even if you got exposed to it, the chances of getting rat lungworm, it's like a, it goes up to your brain. It's not good for your brains, um, but very, very, very few people get it. So even so, so the risk is is pretty low. Although you want to, you want to, you know, if if you did get it, it could be really bad, like eat up your brain bad. But if but if you get exposed to it, it's also unlikely that you actually will get it. So although it is important to be vigilant against it, you don't have to drop everything and stop growing lettuces. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna go on to the next piece I've marked off. Um, 
Uh, and that is that here, oh, right. This is, this is kind of profound. In fact, up until the point where it's, so I'm going to do is, is 10 step plan to combat world hunger. Do you, uh, do you have, Katie, do you have anything to comment on before the 10 step plan? I don't know anything about his work on glaciers. Have you heard anything about his work on glaciers? No, no, I, I was a little bit amazed about that myself. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Like, oh yeah, what what did you do there? What was that all about? Huh? What was that all about? Okay, here is my ten step plan to combat world hunger. Number one, restoring the hydrological balance. Now this is a good time to remind folks that. Um, I'm doing my best to not read more than 10% of the book into the podcast. And so uh, instead, if these things are exciting to you, then you, you got to go buy the book. Um, and so, and part of it is too, that uh, I, I'm hoping that if I say that often enough, go buy the book, that people will go buy the book. And then uh, the publishers will not uh, come after me with sharp things. And so, um, uh, but I think, I think 10% is fair use. Uh, and so we're probably fine, but also I like the idea of the plush, of the publishers thinking that what we're doing here is awesome and they want to encourage it and possibly send me more books to read. All right. Beautiful uh, color pictures. Do you have the book? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Number one, restoring the hydrological balance. And I'm, and he's got a bunch to say there, and it is important, but I've got to draw the line somewhere on what all I'm going to read. So, number two, abolishment of industrial livestock farming. And this one I'm going to read. I have nothing against the consumption of meat as long as the animals are kept naturally and are slaughtered humanely. The mass production of meat and other animal products is not only immoral, it also destroys our environment and is uneconomical. The immense areas needed to grow animal feed should be used to grow food for humans. Animals should be integrated into natural cycles and permaculture needs to be used to cultivate the land in a sustainable manner. You know, one thing is I'm, I'm just glad that Seth is still using the word permaculture. Because uh, quite a few years ago, um, I, I think it was 2009, yeah, it was 2009, I remember him saying that he's going to ditch the word permaculture. It's just got too much negative baggage. And um, and I'm, I choose to believe, and maybe the two of you can chime in and let me know how far off I am. I choose to believe, because, because it seems like before permies.com, the amount of negative baggage and yuckiness about the word permaculture was was pretty pretty severe. I felt like uh, people believed that permaculture was 94% fairy dust, and uh, now I think people believe that permaculture is 3.6% fairy dust. Am I am I anywhere close? I don't know how much you guys knew about permaculture. I don't know in 2000. 2005. Um, I think it's come along, right? 
Katie? Hawaii tends to have a lot of hippies. Right. And so it, if it if it's really purple or have a weird <laughs> reputation, it would not probably dim its reputation in a lot of Hawaii. But I remember in the Seattle area, I was a professor that I knew who was really distancing from the word permaculture and preferred to talk about silviculture rather than a food forest or things like that that sounded yeah. more professional to him. But I think I think you're seeing aren't we seeing more businesses trying to steal the word permaculture and like apply it like a rubber stamp to make themselves look good? I don't know. I feel like I've seen that at least in a few places. I, I do think that there is some of that. And um and I'm not sure if there's a way to, to mitigate that or stop it. No. But I think it's a sign that it's becoming more uh like mainstream positive reputation though, when when they start stealing it. <laughs> I I I choose to pretend that it's because of Hermes.com. Um, I, I believe that in 2004, 2005, um, the, the, the fairy dust, at least in the United States, the fairy dust was a little too heavy. And so you see people like Seth Holter moving away from it because he's just, he's just getting uh, way too many people that are saying that's not permaculture. Um, and uh, and the stuff that they're they're basically commanding his obedience to their whims in the name of permaculture, and he was kind of getting like he's getting sick of it, and so he said, "I'm I got to ditch this word. I've got shit to do. I got to move on." And I'm I'm being held back by this army of people who are singing kumbaya permaculture back here and trying to control what I can do. And um, it's ridiculous. So in the meantime, uh, Permies is like, uh, no, we're gonna um, we're gonna say there are many schools of thought under the permaculture umbrella. We're totally cool with the fairy dust version. That is great. Um, uh, but there's also other versions, and the problems that we are seeing is dominantly the purple people are insisting that purple is the only permaculture, and that's what we no longer allow on permies. We don't allow anybody to say my permaculture is the only permaculture and you all have to now obey me. We don't allow that at permies. And so I think this has uh, created a space where the more serious uh, and scientific forms of permaculture have a, a place to get, to get a voice and to grow. And so I choose to believe that um, that, that this that all these years of sticking to our guns have paid off. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody else believes that or not. And uh, maybe, here's here's the thing. So when this podcast goes public, there will be a thread dedicated to this podcast on permies. I would love to get feedback from people to just write there on whether they think that that's true or not. Now, I do know that a few years ago when Sepp called me in uh, to Bozeman, he was in – well, he wasn't in Bozeman. Where was he? He was, uh, he was at Sage Mountain Center, which is kind of between Bozeman and Butte. And so, um, and so he, I was summoned, and so I went. And that's when he gave me the big wood thing. But uh, he had a, a dinner that was um, – uh, for me and him, and he said something to me about that, that he appreciated what I was doing for permaculture along these lines. 
making it a serious word where serious stuff could be done and it wasn't as flooded with the purple stuff. And so, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just babbling. Purple stuff is great. Love it. Gobs of fun. Not the only permaculture. And some, some people are certain it is the only permaculture. And on my website, which has now gotten to be rather massive, I make it very clear. Not the only permaculture. And that's the only way people are allowed to discuss permaculture is where it's, um, the purple stuff is allowed, but it's not the exclusive thing. It's not the exclusive game. I think that you have such a, a thriving and healthy and vibrant permaculture community on permies.com. I don't think there's any way it could avoid being a really important um, cultural influence in the permaculture circles. I think it's plus that um, the all that you do at Wheaton Labs and all the all the experiments and things going on and all the the teaching, but but I think that it it really has created not just um, a safe place for permaculture discussion, but sort of a hopeful model of internet being positive and internet being positive, hopefully in the future and other platforms. Because creating a place where you are not allowed to be unkind uh, and protecting people from a bunch, bunch of yelling, angry folk, <laughs> yeah. I think that's such an important feature of a community. And if you don't have it, if you just have everybody running loose and no, and no way to stop the bad guys <laughs> or just no way to stop angry yelling that should be conducted elsewhere. I think an important uh, thing is with that is that different people have different ideas of who the bad guys are. And they have a different idea of what angry yelling is. They have a different idea of what poor behavior is and stuff like that. And so what you have at Permies is, is what is my flavor. That's, that's what I think is, is good discussion, good healthy discussion. Which, and I think that what happens is, is that all the people that, that agree with that analysis are like, this place is great. And they want to come and be part of it, and it's got to be massive. But we still get people who come by and say, no, this is wrong, this is evil, this is wicked. And then we're like, I think you need to find a different community to hang out in. <laughs> you need to head on down the road there, buddy. So this it's relative and subjective. That's all I'm saying. But thank well, you, Katie. You make me sound so cool. <laughs> well, I, I was losing faith in Internet communication because the loudest, angriest people keep winning because they get the most attention. But I don't think that's the case on Permies.com, and I think it's a model. I mean, it could be other people's version. But and when I say bad guys, I mean people who are intentionally trying to harm others, like trolling and harassing just for fun. I don't mean um, well-intentioned people who are just a little bit louder than little stompy. <laughs> um, well, and those trolls are not trolls on other sites. And then we would be the trolls on those other sites. What? No, no. Think about it. If, if you go to a site where they, they love herbicides and, and we're trying to say like, you know, but you can do it without herbicides. We are the trolls. It's all about being relative and subjective. And so, um, uh, we, if, I mean, and part of it is, is that, you know, the way that we be not trolls is to go to a site that has values like our values. 
right? Sure. I mean, my definition of a troll is somebody who's intentionally provoking upsetness in the other person, not just somebody with a very different opinion. Because you could state a very different opinion in an extremely polite way and then, you know, not not push it too hard. And I don't I don't feel like that's trolling. Um, unless you, you know, do it in a way that causes people to become very upset on purpose. <laughs> but, I mean, I think you're right. I think absolutely it would be good for to have to have places where anybody of any any opinion can go and have a place. But it's, I don't see a lot of places that are safe if you want everybody to be kind. There aren't that many. And I think uh, I'm really encouraged by your site being able to function and, and thrive and create places for anyone who... Who is willing to be kind? Well, I, I uh, of course, think those words are magical, and I love them, and I want to hear this. I want to hear more all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, I want to enter into a 20-hour-long discussion about, um, you know, different styles of communication, uh, namely how we train human beings that if they are hostile and crazy, they get more candy. So they are rewarded for that behavior. And this form of communication, which we might think of as trolling, is taught to people as uh, a way to be emphatic, like to add emphasis to your words so that your words now matter. And it's like, a, like one way to get your words to matter is to like do some research. But that takes time, and, and people are impatient. And if they find that if they just say it in an emphatic way, that um, stupid people will believe them. And so they're like, then that's, and that's good enough. So, but people are so, so taught this today that about this form of, well, okay, you know what? I'm, I will easily go into 100 hours of discussion about, uh, forms of communication and what, what, and, and where it's going and, and all that stuff. But I think instead I want to focus on the book. <laughs> Unless you've got anything else you want to say right now before we continue on with the book. Good plan. Thank you for reading me in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a delicious topic and I would really love to jump into it, but, but I kind of feel like, ah, oh, let's, let's cruise through this book. And, uh, and, and, uh, it's, because I think that this is this is magnificent and glorious. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.